Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. A happy Halloween season to all from Daily Horror Habit. To kickstart the spooky season, this week dives right into a 1981 Italian horror classic, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond. Blending surreal cosmic horror with cutting edge and notably brutal practical effects, The Beyond is a film that seemingly only ages better 40 years later. The film follows a young woman who inherits a rural Louisiana hotel, though, as it happens, the hotel was the site of a ghastly murder and could very well be a gateway to hell. But it isn't just me highlighting this seminal horror film, as I'm joined by BloodyDisgusting.com's video game editor and fellow co-host of the Safe Room podcast, Neil Bolt, to break down one of his favorite Fulci films. Neil, welcome to the show. It's good to be back. Right. <laughs> it feels like we're not really apart. So, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it's always great having you back on here. If uh, if anything, just to give you an excuse to stretch some uh, some different muscles in chatting film. But yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, whether it be uh, horror games or horror movies. But we always get to uh, chat regardless about our mutual love exactly. of horror. And, um, you know, we had planned initially to talk about Fulci films before and, yeah, situations happen as circumstances happen, we didn't. So, but this is as good an excuse as any because, you know, this film is as old as I am. And <laughs> <laughs> so, um, not to reel too much about myself, but yes, um, in terms of that, it's special in its own way, you know, but um, this, the last few weeks, I, I finally watched it in some decent quality, which is, is something, mm. which seems to be the way I've come to every single one of Lucia Fulci's films is I've watched a very poor copy first, then watched a decent copy. And that's really <laughs> lent a fondness to his stuff to me because it works so much better in the cheaper format you know, initially when you watch it I feel because of you know there's a an aged quality to some of the stuff from the 80s 70s and 80s that, that really doesn't translate necessarily to someone who's never experienced it before or doesn't have an appreciation for that sort of stuff before well the general nastiness and sort of greediness of these types of movies, mm. right? I mean, the first time you watch it, should it really be a 2K or 4K scan, if anything? But I mean, this was my first experience in his field of work. And it was the type of thing where I was like, well, finally, I'm getting to watch one of his movies, but I don't necessarily have the full exposure to his filmography. So I'm curious for you, what was your first sort of experience with his um, work or introduction? Yeah, so I, I think I've discussed this before when we were talking about Day of the Dead and I said about Dawn of the Dead and Zombie Fleshy as being like my, so there was like a double bill of those two films and how impactful they were and the, you know, the, the coherence that is in Romero's films, you know, in terms of how he handles things. Um, Fulci stuff is very much more dreamlike you know there's always this nightmarish quality you know not in the oh i'm in a haunted house and here's some stuff jumping out at you sort of sense like you'd expect most 
descriptions of dreamlike material. He really does just get this sort of be the dream, none of this really makes sense sort of feel to things. And Zombie Fleshy is the first example of that for me that really struck in his horror output because you know he's had a massively diverse output of films before that you know he's done westerns that were very gory and bloody uh massacre time is like one of my favorite western films that he made and it's just so campy and gory and brilliant and just it came at the end of the spaghetti western era but it's so very much his sort of work before you know, before a time where he really made any of the films that made him famous, you know, that made him the star he is, you know, it's it showed that he was always willing to sort of take things a level beyond, you know, he he really did, and you know, <laughs> beyond forms part of this little unofficial trilogy of his, you know, that uh, this the city of the living dead and the house by the cemetery, where it's like this gateway to hell, sort of style stuff going on and they all feel like a trilogy it, without ever really being connected by any kind of narrative it's just that if you know when you like have a dream or a nightmare that's you you feel you get the same vibes on another nightmare later because that's the stuff that traumatized you and so it carries on into a new nightmare so you still have a lot of the same qualities in there, uh, uh, but in a new context. And that's how it feels with the Beyond and City of the Living Dead and House by the Cemetery. That you had this whole weird thing going on, you know, the, the, just, it doesn't feel like you've watched something. It feels like you, you've manifested it, you know, it, like it, it never really happened, but the evidence is there clearly that you know out there in the world that these films were real and there's something to them but yeah the the vagueness and the ambiguity to them just makes them special and it started from you know, for me with zombie and never really let up yeah i think that that idea of a more thematically connected trilogy if you will is more appealing to me just because it doesn't obviously tie the sort of the narrative dots, obviously, that a normal trilogy would. And I think with something like The Beyond, even though I don't have the rest of his body of work to really compare it to, it's a film that feels unique whether or not you have that history with his work. And I think that it's exciting to me to hear that within that unofficial trilogy, he explores the same themes or the same sort of attitude to horror and practical effects and the sort of exploitation style of the beyond in a lot of ways. He explores that with with different variables, but it's the yeah. same hand guiding those. And that, for me, is something that I would like to see horror almost return to in a lot of ways. This idea that a director is doing this unofficial, if you will, trilogy of films or however many films they want to, whether it just be one or uh, one sequel or up to three sequels, like the idea that they're experimenting with similar concepts, but slightly yes. different. And whether or not it has that connective narrative tissue is secondary almost to our enjoyment of it. And I think that that is clearly so key to the Beyond working as well as it does in that we mentioned before uh, recording, this is an incredibly ambiguous film. And yet it's a film that 
I don't ap approach really in talking about it with people as it being, I suppose I describe it as being ambiguous, but not in the same vein as a film that is entirely reliant mm. on its narrative. You know what I mean? Like it's ambiguous, but to watch the film, you don't, in, your enjoyment of the beyond doesn't derive from its no. narrative or whether or not it gets a successful uh, conclusion or not, or even building to something just because it is a film, like you said, that is so key to that sort of uh, description of it being a fever dream in that it's more about just experiencing it rather than, oh, it having some conclusion or some revelation that, oh, this is what it was all about, more so than just kind of like living through it, its unique brand of violence and practical effects and gore and what that really evokes rather than some type of uh, perfectly pristine bow on top of a uh, various characters sort of just experiences. Yeah, it, it draws a lot of parallels to me and this is again something quite new to me um, uh, is Ben Wheatley's films. Um, mm. I've recently sort of experienced a few of his like A Field in, in England, Sightseers and uh, Kill List and while his are more narrative based he evokes a lot of what I love about Fulci, you know, that he he gets that you don't have to put plot first if you don't want to. You you can tease what you think should be happening and make imagery the the key thing in your project. And that now, quite clearly from the reaction you see online to Wheatley's films is um not for everyone you know you uh, for every person that thinks his work is brilliant you have people who really really angry about what he does you know it's like and they're the best directors in, in my opinion you know the, they, they never make anything that is like profound you know like people go on about in terms of like thought they've gone about uh films like um sorry the wrong mic thing. Uh, yeah, so they've gone about films like Don't Torture a Duckling, you know, as being like these, um, mm. the cultured version of what Fulci could do. But it feels lesser to me, you know, compared to what he could actually do, you know, like uh, Cat in the Brain, which is his very uh, meta sort of take on it, where it's, it's basically about him making horror movies and how his, you know, it's affected him and this little satire on himself, you know, is a better representation of Fulci than Don't Talk to a Duckling. You know, the, the New York Ripper, you know, is nasty and, you know, to the point where it is beyond daring and beyond just, it, it is shock value incarnate, but it still, again, feels very much more him than it does something like that, that people would take on an artistic level with that with Don't Talk for a Duckling um, this is the special thing about him I, I, <laughs> I think a very modern term is about things being all vibes you know and Fulci was very much into that you know he was very much into creating vibes in his films beyond you know, the context of anything else and the beyond is you know, surprisingly, out of the three films in that sort of trilogy, is the most coherent of the lot. You know, he, he, you know, hmm. he, this structure and 
uh, premise behind it that makes sense compared to the rest. Um, especially compared to say the house by the cemetery, which just feels so weirdly loose and odd and at odds with the rest of it. And less, you know, beyond, despite the stuff that happens, it is less disturbing than say the city of the living dead fucking, you know, brains leaking out of mouths and shit. And it's grim in a, such a surprising way that you can, t- again, you can tell it's so fake, but it hits, you know? Uh, I think we discussed it before when we were saying about Day of the Dead and how, you know, if you were to sort of put a modern lens on it and see some of the goriest, meaner scenes in that film, they don't look real, you know, if you really think about it, but there's something about them that's unnerving, you know? And this is Fulci's skill. You know, and the beyond cuts to the core of that, that he doesn't have to make stuff look real because as much as you think stuff should look real, it's the presentation, you know, how he presents the, the violence and disgusting stuff is just hits the right spot. You know, it, it really just nails something in your brain that says, oh, no, this, I don't like this. You know, this, this feels wrong. Um, like the gouging of faces, like acid burning faces, which happens on more than one occasion. You know, it's like it's clear that it, the puncturing of yeah, eyes. I mean, the, the tarantula scene. It, beyond, you know, where a whole bunch of tarantulas for some reason and, you know, go all over everybody and start tearing at this guy's face, and it's just like you know now that's not what tarantulas do. This isn't right. That doesn't make any sense. Fucking hell, it's horrible. You know, it, it feels uncomfortable you know uh, as a scene it's like and that's impressive you know to, for any film to do even now to make something that if you apply any logic to it it doesn't make sense but because Fulci's films don't follow logic because they did you know fuse dream logic with the supernatural they always leave you with this feeling of like oh shit yeah you could imagine yourself having a nightmare about this stuff you know in just this horrible stuff that you will never likely encounter in your own life, but you would fear you know, happening. And, and, and it's brilliant in that way. And this goes to a cosmic level on that, you know, the beyond really does of the three films while they all sort of not have a nod towards this, this greater evil, and, and this thing that's going on beyond the film it, it's like the beyond itself really does end up just going to this, like no, the, the, this evil is coming from a place beyond here you know like and like it, the film literally ends with this depiction of a place beyond our world that is hell effectively and it's just so you know Hell, it, it, you know, when it's ever represented in media, it tends to be, you know, fire and brimstone, blah, blah, blah. This is just like this barren rock of a place, you know. It, it's closer to what Lovecraft would have put as uh, being hell, you know. The, uh, it, it fits that cosmic, you know, cosmic horror vibe so much better. 
you know, just going off of that, I think that this is such a fantastic depiction of cosmic horror at its most Lovecraftian uh, way without having tentacle monsters and all these types of things that I think we see in a lot of more modern uh, Lovecraftian yeah. horror, right? It's more about like, oh, what's going to come through this portal? And this film does a great job, I think, of showing a lot of horror in the human realm that is a much to the degree of what we would anticipate, right? We've got the walking dead, we've got demons and corpses and all these things. We've got uh, the most horrific insects alive crawling over you and ripping at your face. But when it comes to actually depicting hell in the finale of the film, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, even though I don't think you can get much further than the final moments of the film, when it depicts hell, it is literally just infinite barrenness. And that in and of itself is the most terrifying idea of what the afterlife could be like, right? The idea that hell is literally, there's no fire, there's no brimstone, there's no de devil with a poker. It's just infinite nothingness. And you might stay with the person that you arrived in hell with, or maybe they'll disappear just like you inevitably will disappear and become part of that nothingness. And that I think is the best way to describe this film in that he is able to take horrors that whether they are derived from uh, pre-established fears or phobias of human and their intentions and things like that, he takes it to varying degrees of, okay, I'm going to give you the most phobia-inducing and gore-exploitative-inducing in uh, moments where it's either you're gouging out eyeballs or you're melting faces or you're blowing the heads off of zombie children. But at the same time, I'm going to give you the other version yeah. of something that is horrific and hellish that is the mundane to the degree that's insanity inducing and that i mean this is only the second time i've seen the beyond and the first time i was like well ah, there's some good bits of gore here and there but it's nothing that's really going to stick with me and in the subsequent years that followed in between my viewings it was most recently much more disturbing in that sort of banality yeah. right in that finale and whatnot which I think really kind of just signifies this is a director that as over the top as he can get and as gory as he can get and as exploitive as he can get, he's able to really reel it back in on a human level and present an equally disturbing scene that is probably the least labor intensive in actually creating in that final moment of the film. But I think that's something that you touched upon that really is at the key of what makes this film such a fantastic and probably overlooked example of cosmic horror. Don't get me wrong, The Beyond is a variety of different horror influences, right? It's part yeah. ghost story, it's part cosmic horror, there's even some zombie uh, zombie stuff in there that is definitely uh, fits the bill in terms of like what you want from like practical effects mm -hmm. and all of this. But at the same time, it abides by a lot of the staples of cosmic horror in the sense of unknown the sense of looseness with specifically within like the structure of the movie and i think that on a first viewing not really knowing what i was getting myself into and not really understanding a lot of the intention behind the beyond yeah. it's something that i came to appreciate in that there is that general looseness right the, there is just enough structure there that it holds the whole thing up to the to the point that i was a little uh flummoxed at people that were complaining about like it's difficult to follow or to understand when, granted, it's not the best narrative I've ever seen and there's definitely a looseness to it, but it feels like it's in service of the type of movie that The Beyond is setting out to be. It doesn't feel like a movie that 
ever gives an indication that, okay, I'm going to get to really know these characters and we're going to go on this journey that has this arc and there's this massive climax and these are dynamic characters and like it never gives an indication that that's the type of film it sets out to be. It's very deliberate in what it is and it's deliberate in that sense that it is in service of the greater purpose of the film. It's never supposed to be this narrative uh, arc that goes in this direction that it's like, oh, this is getting to see these people overcome and all that. That's never the intention of the film from the opening moments. Yeah, and this entire trilogy is basically about the bewilderment uh, facing the unknown. And I think I've only this week um, praised an article on ZXP by, uh, I think it was James Dawson, who went into how games depict Lovecraftian style horror with too much explanation about what's going on and Mm. it's wrong and you need the ambiguity. And this is exactly why the best stuff works, you know, because in terms of games, you talk about Bloodborne, you know, it it embraces cosmic horror, but it never over explains it. And Fulci, when he does it, you know, it's his own brand, you know, he wasn't giving a shit about what Lovecraft was doing necessarily. He's doing his own version of it, you know, he's fueling his own nightmares, you know, he, he gets what needs to be done here. And that dread that comes from it, that it is entirely of his own making, you know, he, he's done these three films you know, that really understand the various fears that people will have about the dead coming back to life, the gates of hell effectively opening, which gives the name of the trilogy, the gates of hell trilogy. And that's it, you know, for all three films being very limited in terms of plot, they all feel very unique, whilst having this sort of connected tissue between them in terms of uh, the atmosphere uh, is fantastic in that regard. This film, especially, I think the you know Louisiana sort of homestead that they have there, and that in itself going back to being such a, a cultural touchstone for zombies as a thing, you know, and, and where they come from makes it interesting because zombie especially is itself also dealt with that you know with the idea of like this old school idea of what zombies should be you know not what romero brought up but more what uh, the traditional haitian sort of idea of zombies were you know these people that were entranced by something and mixing that with that sort of idea of them being dead but not dead um and taking it to this next level and that's where it's almost frightening because these undead don't act like mindless zombies necessarily they 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 feel like they're malicious like they have intent you know yeah this is it and and they, they, they know what they're doing to some degree and that's more frightening you know i i think of um Brian Keane's books where he has demons basically invade the dead bodies of humans to and that's like the zombie stand-in 
And it's more frightening because they had this more autonomous, autonomous nature to them. You know, they are aware and awake of what's going on. You know, the people behind it aren't, but the demons that have infested these people are now, you know, in control and more dangerous than just these shuffling corpses. And here in the beyond, they are just shuffling corpses to a degree but they are working towards a greater purpose. You know, they aren't necessarily aware of it, but they are, you know, they, they are part of this greater insidious plan. And it is that I feel that makes it so different and so discernible from most sort of you know, undead media out there, uh, you know, in the last 40 years, you know, it, it just, it does something so remarkable. You know, this came three years after Dawn of the Dead, and it's such a remarkably different take on the living dead, you know, at that point, that it's, it treats them in a very different way. Like, it feels like it's part of the occult rather than just, like, oh, someone spilled something or this virus has happened. Like, it, 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 it feels part of that traditional magic you know that, that is behind this sort of thing that's happening and it, it's disturbing in a really enchanting way you know for a horror fan yeah i think that comparing it to like something or referencing something like dawn of the dead where in dawn of the dead like the real horror is that inevitably there's nothing behind the zombies right there's no mm. master plan it's just they simply are and that inevitably our own downfall will be yeah. ourselves right trying to grapple with the reality that this is our new reality and that it's more than likely going to be our reality for our lifetime. But something like the beyond is so much more sinister because there is someone pulling the strings behind the curtain, as it were. And even if you don't understand why they're doing it, it's happening and it is going to consume you and those you care about. Um, and there's just something that is much more sinister about that. And I think that it is complemented in this film in that that comes with the unknown, yeah. right? And it's like you had referenced, whenever you explain the unknown, it ultimately becomes less scary. And there is something about this movie that gives it a timeless quality that this movie is, and you mentioned the tarantula scene. I mean, I was basically like eating my fingers during that <laughs> scene because it is still so uncomfortable. And that is more key than anything else, right? As good as the practical effects are, as grotesque as they can be of him getting his tongue eaten and chunks of his face ripped off and whatnot, it is just uncomfortable before they even get there. And this is a quality that I did not appreciate the first time I watched it in that he really takes his time with a lot yeah. of the scenes. There's something, I think what I initially interpreted on my first viewing as being grating maybe, I now appreciate it because before violence even occurs in these films, you are forced into occupying the space of the scene in a way that I think is definitely most apparent in the tarantula scene in that he's on the bookshelf, he falls off, he bangs his head, he's immobilized, he's paralyzed essentially for lack of a better word on yeah. the floor. And you have to watch the spiders and the tarantulas crawl across the floor for a good probably 30 seconds before they actually get onto him. And that in and of itself, the sound design of hearing their legs touching the ground and the sort of the upbeat soundtrack that's playing throughout when we know something horrific <laughs> is gonna happen is more dread inducing than I think 
this film gets credit for in a lot of ways. Sure, you can always say, oh, the practical work is great, and we'll, of course, discuss that more so, and just how great it is and why it's a standout from other practical effects of that period. But at the same time, like, there is an approach to these horrific scenes before the horrific nature of them even occurs mm. that just bolsters everything in a way that makes this timeless in a way that other movies that have, whether it's been spiders or whether it's been eye trauma and whatnot, has not sort of lived past the expiration date that some of those films have had. And they're just sort of aging out. And you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. Spiders are gross. I don't want to get my eyes fucked up. This film, though, it really does approach that in a way that feels special in that you have to live in that world before seeing the horrors that unfold yeah, within it. I, the presentation is key uh, in many a Fulci film. Um, like I said, City of the Living Dead, and it's like you know, the insides being puked up by people affected by what's happening is weirdly just more affecting to me than any number of things I've seen, say, in The Walking Dead, where, you know, people have cut guts up in front of you and all this sort of other stuff, like, that. even in the comic book universe of that series, you know, the, there's some shocking scenes that still don't resonate in the same way. Uh, even down to zombie flesh eaters and the infamous, like, uh, eye splintering, it, it, it is intense and, like, I'd been, you know, when I heard about it, you know, when I first watched that film, you know, there was this whole introductory thing about both that and Dawn of the Dead about what, you know, the controversies were and what made those films so, you know, special and offensive to uh, the British board classification. And yet still experiencing it for the first time was just like haunting. You know, because I think the order they went in when they first came on British TV for the first time was uh, Zombie Flesh Eaters was first. So I watched that one as is, you know, live whilst I was recording both, you know, and I got to that scene and it was just like, wow, that, that, I, I've never seen such a you know, evocative sort of bit of violence like that, you know, and yet, it revels in a weird way because when you think of violence being sort of exploitative in film, it's there's a gleefulness about it that's um, there. It's an aggressive sort of gleefulness. It's, whereas in that film, it was like it's very slowly done, and this ties into what Beyond does with that tarantula scene. It's like it's just drawn out. And it makes you, it's there and keeps going and keeps going well beyond the point of comfort. You know, where you yeah, I get it, I get it. You want it to be a bit gross. No, it's like, no, no, you keep watching. You see this to its natural conclusion. And I think the French new wave of horror later on in the 2000s got that to a large degree. It understood that sort of shock value and just sort of, lingering on violence and, and mutilation to such an excessive degree that, um, yeah, again, as you were saying before, it's like you can see how people may not understand that, may not get that, but um, I think it's, you have to be of a certain pedigree to really 
get that and nail it and shoot it right, you know? And I think, yeah, Fuji is one of those, but uh, I think European directors that understand that kind of horror all throughout, beyond Fuji even, get it. They, they do it and they do it right. And I, I include the French New Wave in that because, you know, I think of Inside, I think of Switchblade Romance, you know, films like that, you know, Martyrs, all films that totally understand that to make violence and gore shocking, you have to kind of treat it in a casual manner. You know, you have to not, you, you can't have someone in the corner basically shouting up going, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. It's amazing. Oh, it's disgusting. Look at this. Like that. You just have to let it happen and treat it like, no, don't yeah, miss a beat. It, it's, this is a natural part of what this story is telling. You know, you cannot avoid it. It's happening. We're not trying to offend you here. But it's, it's just how this world works for us, you know? And it's a shrug of the shoulders, you know? It, it, that's what it is. And Fulci feels like he originated that, you know? The way that they treat the violence in those types of films, especially something like Martyrs or Inside, if you, the viewer, are ever to be like, whoa, that's a bit too far. The film itself almost treats you like you're yeah. the weirdo. You're the one that is that is uh, the odd man out here, as it were, right? The idea that, well, this is perfectly normal in this world we've created. You're, you're taking offense to what we're producing and what the world is yeah. producing is what is at odds. And I think that a big part of his Fulci's approach to violence is that the violence in and of itself goes past the point that a normal director might consider like reason and sanity, yes. right? The idea that it lingers so long that we've gone well past the point of getting the point across with the violence that there is, while not gleeful, there's almost a gleefulness in how long just the camera mm -hmm. lingers. It's not so much that we have to watch the, their, somebody's eye get stabbed 19 times. It's not gleeful in that sort of maybe uh, lack of a, uh, creative approach to something like that, but it makes its point in just making us exist in that space for far longer than makes yes. any sense or narrative or otherwise. And to that degree, I think that the film really outdoes itself and it makes me excited to check out his other films to see how he handles things like that. And it sounds like even in his Western films, which are obviously out removed from horror, he is able to take some of that aesthetic of his own signature style yes. and apply it to that in a way that has similarities, but it matches whatever type of film he's making in other uh, genres, whether they be adjacent yeah, or I mean, not. That year alone, um, that we're talking about 1981, I think he made like three films, you know, The Black Cat, uh, Housewife Cemetery, and The Beyond. You know, and just before that, he'd made uh, City of the Living Dead. He was you know, very you know, busy at that point and, doing stuff and that in itself probably tells a lot of how he was creating stuff but at the same time I think it's just remarkable that he was able to pull that off I in modern day terms I would liken it to what Sion Sono, Sono did um, where he was just like pushing out film after film after film in his own image not caring about fitting a studio formula, about doing things the way he wanted to do them and hoping that there was an audience for it. And in both cases, I feel that fits, you know, it's like 
uh, while Sonu is more profound in terms of that he can extract more meaning from seemingly nothing. You know, Fulci is very much, you know, as I said before, he's very much based on vibes and terms of atmosphere and unease. You know, he, he's not looking to engage you in a story. He's giving you an experience. And, and, and that's important. And then I get how, in the way film criticism is, that that can be seen as detrimental. Yeah, you know, and not really a thing to be worshipped. But I, I really do believe that he has a message in that, you know, in the way he approaches film that deserves to be revered, you know, that he deserves to have uh, more in the way of plaudits for the way he approached horror, especially, you know, that he took it at its most base sense, you know, the way horror is to many people where they experience it in their sleep and, and the fears they have and the, the odd little creeping thought that comes into their heads about something awful. He captures that in film so much better than you, any director ever has. Mm. And the beyond really is just like the encapsulation of that to me where he finally sort of nailed both things at once you know he got to do the uncomfortable gore and probably had the most coherent story to go along with it you know out of many of his films you know it's like it wasn't perfect it wasn't special and it wasn't deep but it works for the story they were telling. You know, it's like, it's something that doesn't make sense and it shouldn't make sense because at the base of it all, it's grounded in reality and anything you get out of it after that is impossible and it should make you feel sort of uncomfortable. But I think that in that lack of explaining and that lack of uh, reasoning behind why certain things occur, he does the legwork, though, in crafting a world that welcomes yes. all of these different events. And that, I think, is more key than explaining anything, right? Because it gets to a point in the beyond where multiple times you start having these like lightning storms inside yeah. the house, right? And that occurs periodically, not only just in the hotel, but in other locations outside of the hotel. And that's never explained. And yet it makes perfect sense that their further descent into uncovering this gate of hell that's underneath it, it consumes not only them, but their yeah. world and that it starts reflecting no matter where these people go, it is following them essentially. And I think that that's an element that maybe 10 years ago would have bothered me and not getting an explanation, but there is something in maybe getting a little bit older that I find I'm willing to give up more in just accepting that a filmmaker is telling this story and that I don't need to know everything because the emotion or the it an event that coincides or an event that occurs coincides rather with the parameters of this very strange unexplainable yeah. world like if the film opens with that there's lightning storms inside the hotel i'm like well i haven't bought into this world yet that doesn't make any sense i need to know mm -hmm. why but 
the way in which the film opens, which is very deliberate in this heinous crime that occurs in uh, the early 20th century, okay, this is a location that a ghastly event has occurred. So already the tone is set, not only in this being a brief history lesson of the area, but that unspeakable violence will occur. And that from a narrative standpoint is established, but his own style, filmmaking style is established in the gratuitousness, in the exploitive nature where we don't just see a man get whipped in the face with metal chains and his cheek explodes or his chest explodes. The camera quite literally zooms in on the point of impact and revels in it for not an egregious amount of time, but far longer than well, you're used to. It's yeah. not the type of quick cut horror cinema that people might expect or be it, used it's to. It's remarkable um, this last week seeing the different grades of um, approach to violence and horror, you know, from you know the PG sort of style all the way up. And I, I start with say Prom Night's remake, where they cut out pretty much everything you know in terms of violence you know to sort of suggest things which you know is not a problem because halloween is probably the greatest horror movie ever without ever really showing the consequences of its violence you know it's like everything is implied blood is rarely shown and yet it's effective you know but you need to have the implication and the menace and the feeling behind it and at the wrong end of the spectrum these days in the last 20 years maybe it, you know it feels nullified you know it feels like you're doing it not because you're trying to be clever but because you're trying to attract a wider audience you know that's you know in terms of rating you know you don't want to ostracize a certain demographic that's it and as a result you make toothless horror and at the other end you have you know stuff that is you know inherently offensive to the point where it's like it feels that it's trying too hard you know the, the source series increasingly got like that you know where it was like, it, it just felt like it was catering further and further to an audience that was getting smaller and smaller that, that were watching it literally for that not for the plot not for anything else and with no meaning no feeling behind it you know it's like you are literally just watching for a youtube compilation of kills you know not because of any experience with the film itself it's like i immediately think back to spiral the book of saw and think i remember some of the kill moments as a film you know doesn't do anything for me you know it's like and I think a lot of films these days struggle to do violence right you know and do extreme violence right Um, and like I said before I think the best ones treat it in a casual manner like it isn't a big deal like it should be part of what you're experiencing Uh, and this is why I said Ben Wheatley's films are really good for that because he doesn't glorify the violence as much as people might think that it just happens and yeah he's not zooming in on the shots necessarily he's not going for it you know 
as much as Fulci is like there focusing on it and saying, here it is, here's the violence. In the context of those stories, it makes sense, you know, but here, you know, with say someone like Willie, he's doing the same thing in a slightly different way. You know, he's mm. being casual. He's not making a big fuss about the violence. It's there like that. But Fulci is doing the same thing, but also saying, if you want violence, you're going to have to experience it as it is, as I feel you should see it. And then, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to try and shock you because you know what you're here for. You, you know you're going to come in for yeah. violence. So, so if you're going to do that, this is why I expect of you to get through my films. Well, I think it comes back to the idea of them, of him making us occupy the scene where violence is inevitable mm. for far longer than we should. And I think that that anticipation, again, like bolsters the actual act yes. of violence that by the time, like specifically that tarantula scene, right, which we keep coming back to because it's, it's so memorable and so uncomfortable that you occupy that scene for so fucking long that the violence of it is inevitable. And it's shocking but it's not shocking that it's occurring yeah. right it's a combination of all the types of things we've been talking about whether it be the practical effects which we have to give a shout out to special effects designer and i apologize if i butcher his name uh gianetto de rossi right he does such a fantastic job of ensuring that the particulars of this and i especially think about the moment in the tarantula scene where they go not just from for his face but they go into his yeah. mouth almost and they start ripping his tongue and ripping his lips and just the the dis obviously the overt disgustingness of that but it's the build-up again before it even starts tearing into him it's just you see a couple of the legs protruding from yes. his mouth and you're like is he going all the way in is he going all the way in no he's going halfway and then immediately starts tearing flesh from yeah. his face and it's the type of thing where again you talked about uh the prom night remake and how they cut away from a lot of the violence and they don't show it and in this they show plenty of the violence and they stay on plenty of the violence but it's more for me at least about the build-up to the violence yes. the build-up to it is what inevitably heightens the actual inevitability of yeah. it to the degree that you're anticipating it so much based on factors other than the actual act of violence that when the violence itself happens you do have that thing that you've been talking about where it's like well, of course, his chunks of his tongue and lips get ripped <laughs> apart. There's a spider halfway down his throat, right? I mean, you don't get to that without that yeah. buildup. If the buildup just happens and then it cuts from it, you're like, well, that was gross for about 25 yeah. seconds. And then you move on exactly. to the next bit. But every single act of violence is approached in this way and makes yeah, it. Yeah, and if it was too short, you would question it more. Uh, yeah, it's like the absurdity of much of this when you really think about it, it wouldn't make sense. But because it lingered on and leaves you there thinking, you know, it leaves you with your thoughts on that so long that you kind of think, well, as much as I reasonably know that this isn't what really would happen if spiders were all over me, it leaves that little lingering doubt, you know, like, oh, yeah, it's like, it's like the dog scene, with, you know, with the Alsatian, that, you know, for me, who has been bitten by that kind of dog you know, in my life, it's horrid to think because there is straight away a basis in my own fears 
for something that unrealistic as it may be, that pushes my fears in the same way that Jaws pushes the fear of sharks and say same way those tarantulas push the fear of spiders. You know, it's like, it's unrealistic, but it's where the mind wanders. You know? It's where the mind goes when it thinks about things that could happen to you, things that could kill you. You know, you don't want that to be the case, but if someone wants to push that in front of you as a way of death, you are gonna have that in your brain forever. And the dog thing there was so much, again, looks totally fake if you're taking it on face value. But because uh, that doesn't really matter when you're doing practical effects, it's when you do CGI that this stuff doesn't really matter. When you do practical effects like this, they can look disingenuous, they can look wrong and fake and just you know jarring, but ultimately they'll get to you in a way that anything else wouldn't, you know. And for me, even though, you know, I watched the Beyond for the first time just a few years ago. And still, you know, that dog scene just gets to me in a in a horrible way that just I, I feel very uncomfortable about it. You know, it's like, and I, I my relationship with dogs and uh, that it is so much better now than it ever was back when I was, you know, ten years old or so when I got bitten by that kind of dog. And yet, it was there. You know, it, it still persevered and gave me this unreasonable fear. And that's perfectly part of being human: is this unreasonable fear of things, things that shouldn't make sense, things that don't make sense, things that are absurd, and still you fear the impossible, you know, and Fulci is immaculate in that sense. He he knows how to get that from people and you know, get that fear of stupid, the impossible, the ridiculous, and make it a thing, you know, it's like, the, the um, I, I liken it to, uh, I think we said this before with um, Day of the Dead, the, the pulling apart of bodies in Day of the Dead left me with a, like a lifetime trauma at the idea of ever that happening to me. You know, like it's like it's never going to. Surely, the, the, you know, it, the possibility of such a thing happening is near impossible. But seeing it ever since is just like it makes me feel horrible and icky in a way that so many other horrible things don't you know it's like and you know much like the shark thing does it's like i yeah i would you know i grew up on jaws and that scared the shit out of me and all that and then as much as you can justify how that turned your fears and that then you watch something like 47 meters down which you know again a film that people have diverse opinions about um but the things in that film perfectly encapsulated what i really was terrified about you know the deep dark water the unknown things you cannot see you know and scared the shit out of me you know and to see that in another film just <laughs> brings it all back up again and yeah, which is the greatest quality of horror. You you want to be scared, and you in your own particular unique way. You know, you want to 
ride it the roller coaster that suits your body and that's that's how it is and Fulci has very much been a part of that for me over the years he has had these sort of films that have defied possibility you know he's defied reality and given these things that could totally exist in your nightmares and they are the things that will always hurt you the most yeah i mean you and i definitely have chatted at length before about um our shared terror of 47 Mm. meters down for the elements of that film that have nothing to do with the sharks it's just the vastness of the dark ocean and the unknown and that's the element of the beyond that i think as phenomenal as like the practical gore is and all of that it's more about the unknowingness of what's coming next that i think really ties into the cosmic horror nature of it and that is at the end of the day the element of cosmic horror that i love so much and i hold near and dear the idea you don't know what's coming next it's kind of i was i just wrote an article um about the thing in the prequel and how the thing itself is the even if you don't care for the prequel itself like it carries on the legacy of the thing in that it is the um, the continual nature of the yeah. unknown. You don't know the next form that it's going to take. And that's what ultimately, no matter which version of the yeah. thing you like, you- the thing itself is the unknown and never being able to fully guess what is in its sort of Rolodex of various species that it is uh, assimilated with over its potentially century long lifespan makes that terrifying. And the idea that, sure, I've seen tentacles and I've seen fangs. I've seen people, clones, and I've seen a dog doppelganger, but who the hell knows how many other planets this thing has experienced or been to and ventured to and all the different organisms and life forms that it could take. And that is truly terrifying in a way that I think is definitely applicable to the beyond and the beyond nature of, yeah, I don't need an explanation for everything because it is continually terrifying me in the new types of horror that it's presenting Mm -hmm. and that is an admirable quality, not only to cosmic horror, but I think horror in general. And it's what makes this film such a standout. And, you know, it makes me excited to go check out the rest of Fulci's films and just further sort of just experience whether or not it's, uh, whether or not it's cosmic horror or not, just his ability to tap into the primal nature of whatever subgenre he's tackling with any given film that he makes. Yeah, uh, it's... He's such a unique personality within film. I mean, I have the the big chunky book of like his filmography and like well, interviews and things about each film and how he came to do them and so he, he was a fascinating director at that and like he, he deserves to be known for more than just zombie flesh he is, you know, and which again is only known because it was a banned film in this country, you know, that because of the whole stupid ban on films. And which, but at the same time, that's the reason I got to see it, you know, and why it was you know, exposed the way it was because it, the first time it ever got to be shown on British TV was because of the fact that it had been banned previously and like it was a big deal and like that's great. And I remember the illicit danger of like, being told that yeah fair enough record it watch it in your own time but you're not staying up to watch this you know sort of thing like that (laughs) didn't listen and (laughs) 
the best way of all, the best start to any story of uh, adolescence. It really is, and you know, I did that for that, and I couldn't do it for both films, that and Dawn of the Dead, because you know, just time. But it was, it was special, and it was hard to appreciate at the time just how special that was. And you know, he's become you know in the years since become one of my favorite directors. You know, whereas I can look at many directors that I enjoy and look at their craftsmanship and like they you know look they were helped in the writing of this film and it was great or the, you know the, the the shots they make are just fantastic. Fulci did his own thing. He really was just this director that went for shot value but in his own manner. As I said earlier, you know, he, he got how to do the graphic without being stupid about it, you know, and I, I really appreciate that. And I, I found that very difficult to find in many a director. You know, you think of all the directors that have come up and done all these revered films since after doing like culture shock stuff, like you think of Sam Raimi doing Evil Dead, you think of Peter Jackson and Bad Taste and, 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 and Dead Alive. And Fulci never left that groove, you know? It's like, because he, unlike those directors, wasn't trying to shock so much, you know? He was just trying to present things as he felt they should be seen. And I, I think that's the most remarkable thing about him as a director. And like I said, as much as people see Zombie Fleshy as, as being his greatest work, I think the beyond really is the perfect match of narrative and uh, direction you know in, in terms of what he does yeah and i definitely think that i would describe him as being just obviously again based off of just this film is like stylized shock mm. value right it's not just his tapping into the unknown it's not just that his films are gory and uh, gratuitous and maybe they're framing right not necessarily like the gore itself being again like that crude example I gave where it's not somebody getting stabbed in the face 19 times but it's just enough of it and it's lingering yeah. that it is heightened in a way that is uncomfortable yes. and that's key right is that it's uncomfortable it's not laughable um, which I think a lot of the time people that go for shock value their films often come off to me at least as laughable it's not really that it is or rather the moments of violence are laughable not necessarily the entire endeavor of bringing that film to life is laughable um, but in terms of like this film, a big element in retaining that aesthetic that he has that really carries this sense of the unknown, the surreal nature, the sort of fever dream nature that you mentioned and that you can never truly anticipate what's coming next or a tone that they're trying to strike is the music. And the music for this film, I think, and it should be noted is uh, from composer Fabio Frizi, is that it is very in line with what my idea of Italian um, I don't even know the best way to put it. Maybe pop, pop rock yeah. alt, for lack of a better phrase, um, is the way that I would describe it, akin to something like Goblin, which of course very famously was in Suspiria, except less, less primal or less occultist. Yeah. It sounds almost more like what I would think would be on sort of like the top pop Italian uh, rock charts type thing. But it feels completely at odds with what is occurring on screen. And I think that 
that is the key to evoking the very tone that he is trying to set with the film and that you're never quite sure how you're supposed to feel when something horrific is happening because there's just like this this upbeat music that's playing in the background like oh we should be having fun here and yet somebody's getting stabbed in the face or you're getting your tongue ripped out yeah, by a tarantula. Like I say, it comes back to that. It's, everything is presented so matter of fact that the music can mm. be very jarring, you know, it, it, but that feels like a, a very deliberate choice you know, it, it, to have this you know, lackadaisical music that behind everything that you know, in the wrong hands would just feel like what the fuck are you doing you don't understand what you're doing but <laughs> it's a coy sort of teasing to, to what she's doing in, in this film but like, he gets it he, he absolutely gets where yeah. he's going you know, atmospherically musically visually it all matches up when you really think about it I'm glad we can agree that uh, the Beyond soundtrack is a certified bop but um, it's the type of thing also that extends past the soundtrack, I think. And again, like the sound yes. design and the handling of the music, but also the sound design, I think they work almost so seamlessly mm. with one another. And I think about the first real instance that stands out to me is when uh, the little girl's mother, they go to the morgue and then she, of course, gets her face melted yeah. by that acid. and leading up to that the soundtrack is playing and it's got this sort of like upbeat funky music but then the music cuts out and you just have to listen to her face sizzling and it lingers on that again coming back to that just like lingering in the moment occupying a space and not trying to heighten a very just natural moment right it's it's almost as if it's devoid of all production it's just that you're in a space you're hearing and seeing things as they are and that in contrast with the jarring production value is more haunting than anything you could ever exactly, imagine. Because this is the thing again, that you think of how many lazy horror films aggressively hit the, the, the orchestral strings in, in key moments, you know, <laughs> like I've been saying this today and they really go for it, you know, trying to sort of push to you, the viewer, that this is a moment you should care about. This is a thing you should really invest in. This is going to be the big scare coming up. They're trying to signpost what you should feel. And I think the absence of sound, you know, you know, extra sound in those moments in full two films, and this again is not the only example of this happening, makes it unpleasant you know in the right way it makes it effective you know like like you said you hear the sound effects of what's happening over any music you know and that is perfect because it is the film ripping you out of the movie to experience an unpleasant unnatural situation and and it works perfectly for that I mean, it, I take it back again to that tarantula scene. It, they might as he might as well paralyze the mm. viewer in that instance as much as the victim is about to be in hearing each of their tarantula legs like touching the floor and crawling across yeah. the floor. Uh, much in the same way at the beginning, where the uh, the quote unquote like unholy warlock is getting whipped to death and then gets his face melted with wax. There's music leading up to that. There's music in the aftermath of that. But I'm almost certain when he's getting whipped. 
All you hear is that chain ripping through his flesh. All you hear is his face sizzling yeah. with that hot wax. And it makes it makes something very fantastical and to a certain degree, like in terms of the portrayal of it, farcical in a way. Like this like doing a slam yeah. zoom in on the his skin exploding. Like that's very comical to a certain degree, but the way that it's framed and then having to listen to the impact of an injury like that. And it's something that I would say is very similar to uh, one of my favorite directors who doesn't necessarily do horror, but he definitely draws uh, elements from that is Jeremy Solanov, who did uh, Green Room, Blue Ruin and that and the like. His approach to violence is very minimal, but he it, his scenes of violence are very devoid of all theatricality. Like they don't have, again, like you said, that big yeah. like orchestral moment that cues the viewer and, hey, you should pay attention to this. This is going to be fucked. Or having a lot of excessive violence, there's very few instances of violence, and yet each and every one you'll never yeah. forget. And while I would say that Fulci is a little more uh, grandiose with his violence and a little more, uh, how, how would you would say, maybe like just more liberal with his violence throughout his films, because obviously it's a different genre. You have to have a little bit more of that in these types of movies. It's still the same exact thing where he approaches it with, this is not going to be a forgettable mm -hmm. bit of violence. This is not going to be something that is a checkbox and okay, it's been 15 minutes, let's do some other messed up, uh, fucked up shit. Like everything feels purposeful in the sense that I'm gonna follow through with it with the same, the same production value or rather the same intent mm -hmm. that the last three bits of violence have been. And I think that's yeah. key. That's key in not being, it's, not, it's key in not allowing violence to be seen as an afterthought, which at the end of the day, makes it like okay yeah so let's get another bit like this in 10 minutes and it's not so much a series of sort of like short milestones it's more so let's make everything impactful yes. as the last even if the content itself is very very yeah, different it's also being a checklist basically which is right and for want of a better word makes it feel more organic if you will you know it, it, it it's how it should be um, I think the genre suffers from that a lot, where uh, it's got so bad that certain things are expected, and I think we discussed this in video game terms as well, that there are certain things that people want, yeah, the majority of people want out of a horror film, and anything else feels like an affront to that, you know, and that was never the case back then, you know, that, that you could get safe horror films, relatively speaking, and but you would still have so many weird experimentations because of what was coming out of Europe and, you know, what was, I mean, Christ, the 80s was just something else, you know, in terms of like, mean spirited horror you know like you think of Lombardo Bava's demon demoni you know that is just such a nasty nasty film you know it, it didn't give a shit about what it was doing you know it, it was like no you know violence is happening we're not going to let anyone get away with it you know everyone in this film is just as likely to suffer as the next you know and subverting those 
very safe, very American sort of rules to how horror should be and how horror horror was being sold. You know, it's it made a big impact and it's it's hard because that makes a lot of sense in terms of keeping horror going over the years. Is you need that. You, like any genre, you, you need the safe stuff to allow the riskier stuff to be made and continue. You know, I think we still have that to this point. You know, there are films out there now that are getting you know, rave reviews from people who love horror that the average horror viewer is not going to ever see. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's horrible. But acceptable because it's very much been the same for decades, and the Beyond is proof of that. Yeah, because the Beyond deserves to be up there in, in the great pantheon of horror movies. But when you really think about the horror movies that are there, they are the ones that appeal to the most people. You know, it's like Jaws, Halloween. You know, I, I discussed this earlier. Halloween is so appealing to so many people mainly because it's so bloodless you know it, it is about the suspense rather than the gore it's why a quiet place did very well because it was more about the suspense than it is about the gore and i fully appreciate that as a way of tackling horror but i don't think it's fair to knock films that do the other thing, yeah, like this, you know, where they they take the, the complete opposite tack and really delve into the unpleasantness and the the uncomfortable stuff that people don't want to get into. That that is truly what horror is. Yeah, I know that often gets lost in, in the discussion of horror about what is horror. Is it about what scares you? Is it about what disgusts you? And it's like it can be. Yes, it can be what you know emotionally traumatizes you, you know, without you realizing it. It doesn't even have to be a traditional horror film uh, to really terrify you. I, I brought this up with When the Wind Blows, which you know, is an animated film by the guy who made The Snowman. And yeah, it's the most horrific depiction of nuclear war and the implications of it that you will ever see, you know, because it's a doddering old couple obliviously walking into the end of the world because they don't really care to read up on their, their issues and what's happening. And it it's terrifying. And it's just, you sit there almost with your hands over your eyes. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. You, you don't understand what you're doing wrong. and. It's just what I mean. Horror can be so many things. And I, I think it's horrible to disqualify any one thing as being horror, you know? Being unnerved, being, you know, dreading something, being scared of something, all qualify just as much as each other. And this is what I think. While false films aren't necessarily about being scared of what you see, it's very good at making you feel uncomfortable, you know, and this is key. And I think that's just as viable 
intense horror as anything else. I'll add also that it's not just that the film makes you uncomfortable and it's not just that it has a lot of sort of just gore throughout mm. it. It's just that every I, I feel that every single element of the film is treated with the respect or with the sort of pristine qualities that it should have. I think that like you're mentioning the 80s, right? I mean, how many films have we seen that it's like, well, this film is a reaction to the success of another, and this is a worse mm-hmm. version of it capitalizing on the success of that, right? I mean, the list would go on. We would need to do a whole other podcast <laughs> about that. But it's more so about the idea that this is a film that, for the period, perhaps, it is going in the opposite direction of maybe something that is more in line with what people assume horror films are, and yet it has additional qualities that bolster it, but also those elements that they're expecting are done to a degree that they are not accustomed to. This is not just another horror movie that has gore and deaths and things like it. This has practical effects that for the, when you're talking about the wide general audience of horror film fans have never seen anything from this era that looks like this. I mean, it, it is wild to me that a film like this is not spoken in the same breath as a majority of mainstream 80s horror films. And granted, it has something to do with accessibility, right? I mean, part of it is that it wasn't, hasn't been in the American general lexicon for a very long time because of the release and all those things that it encountered due to the content. So of course it was never going to have the same reverence within a general mainstream Mm -hmm. horror audience as something like a Friday the 13th for a lack of a better example. But my point being in that this film achieves so much of what so many films from this era purported mm-hmm. to do. And yet this is one of those films that actually does it to a degree that a majority of films wouldn't obtain for another decade yeah. almost, I would say. And I, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that just in terms of comparing this to where, and it's not even, it's not even like a European horror thing or a nationality horror thing. It's just more so about, well, if this audience, if this director was able to do this and so many claim to do this, why did they not do what this director was doing for yeah. all of these years? And granted, again, I am not well-versed in his filmography after getting to revisit the beyond and getting a new appreciation for it. It's something that I definitely mm-hmm. want to pursue throughout the course of the year and just moving forwards, tackling more of his filmography and seeing if he was able to build off of the strengths that are so clearly displayed in the beyond. And yet it's the same thing though, where this is the, this is the horror film that I feel like a lot of people, when they romanticize eighties horror, how do you talk about that for any period of length without mentioning something in the same breath as the beyond? Because this film checks all of these boxes. And in a lot of ways, I find at least that in somebody that loves a lot of modern cosmic horror, well, where do you think they got all their nods from? Because clearly somebody back in the 80s had a good grasp on it. And you can see a lot of clear inspirations from the beyond moving forwards. And I would be interested to see if he is able to tackle similar subject matter or adjacent uh, genres or subject matter moving forward past the beyond. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got a wrangle on that sort of thing. and. I think Euro Horror was very good at doing that sort of thing at the time. So, yes, I, I think personally you will find that there are films that capture this sort of spirit perfectly within his lexicon. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, this is one of those movies that we could talk about it for almost 
90 minutes and barely scratched the surface. But uh, Neil, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on uh, Daily Horror Habit to talk horror. And uh, I look forward to having you on again, hopefully in the future. Yeah, likewise. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.